0: If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 1. And we will not just be looking at one verse today. No, no, no. Not just two verses. No, no, no. Fifteen verses today. We'll be reading John 1, 19 through 34. Now, we have, and continue to plug and to push Community groups, I, I would ask that each and every one of you who as a member here should be involved in those groups. We we think that they are important not only for discipleship and for teaching, but for fellowship, for getting to know your fellow Christians in this church, for being able to pray with them, to be encouraged and convicted by them, uh, to, to simply build up the community of Crossway Christian Church. I think that those community groups are excellent for all of those reasons. And certainly, the book that we are reading this time, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, I think has been an incredibly helpful book for most of us. Uh, it has spurred on some very good conversations in my community group, and I, I would assume, and speaking to others, that it has in yours as well. This past week... Um, not Not the chapter we are reading for tonight, but the chapter that we read for last Sunday was on evangelism, a biblical understanding of evangelism. And Mark Dever was very faithful to go through and to talk about certain things that we think about evangelism or certain concepts that we have about evangelism that might be wrong in order to really get at the heart of what the Bible teaches about evangelism. This sometimes includes personal problems that we have or common misunderstandings about whether or not we're supposed to evangelize to all people or or who is the person who is to go out and evangelize, or even what they are to say when they evangelize. And it's been a very helpful book, and that was an exceedingly helpful chapter. One of the things you find, though, as you, you learn, and you learn about learning is that learning is always best when it's experienced. When you have somebody who shows you an example of what to do, that is easily the best way to learn. And this is true for everybody. If you are a child who's learning to walk, watching other people walk is a really helpful thing. If you are learning how to do calculus, watching someone do calculus is a very helpful thing. If you are going to be a surgeon, then it helps to watch other surgeons and how they go about it. Just reading something in a textbook is probably not what you want your doctor doing before he does your quadruple bypass. You want to know that he has actually seen it done, right? That's a good thing. Examples are wonderful. And so, it is providential, then, in the The week that I have had as I preached a revival on Wednesday, we talked about evangelism on Sunday, we have this beautiful example of John the Baptist and how he points people to Christ. And so today, we come to learn from his example, to see what we can uh, call from his example, and how we can better point people to Jesus. So if you would, read with me from the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 19, and we will read through verse 34. And this is the testimony of John. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of our Lord. What can we learn from John today? First when you evangelize people, when you go out to proclaim the good news to the nations, and whether those nations are your family, whether that nation is friends, whether that nation is neighbors, whether that nation is coworkers, I would encourage you to not fret your humility. Do not fret your humility. Being humble is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And don't think that you cannot impact the nations for Christ simply because of who you are in your humble state. John has now moved off of his initial prologue, which he kind of lays out the themes of his entire gospel, and the very first thing that he comes to is, of course, the ministry of John the Baptist. And while his ministry is taking off, there were certain people in Jerusalem who had to figure out what was going on out in the desert. John was like a vacuum, a black hole. People were just sort of funneling to him, and the leaders understood that this was something that was starting to kind of get taken, taken away. People were starting to come out from Jerusalem all the way out to the Jordan to be baptized by him, and they needed to know what was going on. It, it's not that they are simply nosy bodies. This was Actually, their job. As leaders in Israel, they needed to make sure that John wasn't doing something nefarious, that he wasn't doing something that would cause the people of Israel pain and destruction. And so they come out to ask him some questions, specifically addressing who he is. And John confesses right away he is not the Christ. Their question focuses on whether or not he's the Christ. He says he didn't deny, but he confessed. The denial that he is not the Christ. Notice what he doesn't do here yet. At this point in time in the gospel, John doesn't know who the Christ is, but he knows one thing's for certain he ain't him. And so he says very clearly, I am not the Christ. They ask a second question, which we will jump to the third one first. Are you the prophet? He says, No, I'm not the prophet. Some people have taken this to be, are you a prophet, but it's not really talking about a prophet in general. John, no doubt, I think, thought of himself as a prophet, given how he understands his calling from the book of Isaiah. But he says, I'm not the prophet. So if you're not the Christ, who is the main person we're working for, maybe you are the prophet. That the prophet comes from a passage of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, where Moses prophesies that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, that clearly is not only looking forward to prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and Amos, Elijah and Elijah and all the other prophets, but it's looking forward to a specific prophet, one who will look like Moses. We would have to believe, if we read the book of Matthew, that that Moses-like figure is none other than Jesus himself, but John answers correctly. He says, I am not the prophet. This is not who I am. The second question is actually the most interesting for us. They ask him, are you Elijah? Which he answers, no. Elijah, of course, is an incredibly important prophet, as we've mentioned before, because he was supposed to come again. The last book of the Old Testament that was written, the last prophet who spoke before the great famine of the word of God that Amos speaks of, Malachi prophesies this as the last words of the Old Testament, the last words that were written before God goes silent and John the Baptist comes on the scene. Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Of the Lord comes. And so they say, Are you the forerunner? Are you the one who is to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord? And John the Baptist says, No. There's a bit of a difficulty here because other scriptures look at him and say, Yes, indeed he is. And this has been confusing for many people, and they have actually pointed at this saying, You see that John. John is battling against the other Gospels. He's, he's trying to show that, that John the Baptist isn't Elijah, where the other Gospels say that he is. There's, there's contradiction here. Your Bible is all messed up. Well, you know, the Bible's not terribly messed up. I think that the Bible is true. I think that you're probably messed up if you read it that way. And here's the reason why. So Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Later on in chapter 17, Jesus says, says this to his disciples. The disciples come to him and first ask, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has come already. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Given the fact that already in the Gospel of Matthew, Elijah was identified as John the Baptist, Jesus has twice identified John the Baptist with Elijah. Mark 9.3 does approximately the same thing. But here in the Gospel of John, the flat question asked to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Now, is John trying to critique their understanding of who John the Baptist was. I don't think so. I think he knows that you expect him to say yes, and this is all the more important for the reason he says no. You will notice in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever John the Baptist is talked about and his role is explained, it is not John the Baptist who does it. Specifically in the book of Matthew, who twice calls John the Baptist Elijah? It's not John the Baptist, but it's Jesus who calls him Elijah. They ask him then, are you John the Baptist? Or excuse me, not are you John the Baptist. He would say yes to that. He'd say, That's the one thing he will confess to. I am John the Baptist. You have, you have answered correctly. <laughs> they would ask him, are you Elijah? And he would say no to that. But Jesus clearly thought he did. What we have is a difference between Jesus' conception of what John is doing and John's conception of what John is doing Well, what does he say he actually is? He says, I am the one who is a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. The actual quote from Isaiah comes from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. And it's an incredibly important quote because Isaiah 40 begins a shift in Isaiah. Before then, there is much doom and there is much destruction. But in Isaiah 40, God begins to comfort his people. As a matter of fact, this begins a huge shift in the tone and the tenor of the book of Isaiah. And it begins with that word comfort in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare a way of the Lord, make straight the desert In the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He is a voice crying out in the wilderness. This passage of scripture was for people who would be or were in exile. And he's saying that there will come a time when God will comfort his people and there will be a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight a path for our God. And that straight path is meant to image, the easiest road that you could possibly find. These are people who don't know anything about asphalt, and they don't have caterpillar tractors to level mountains, but he says something's going to happen. The valleys are going to be raised up, and the the mountains are going to be brought down. The rough patches will be smoothed out, and it will be like an eight-lane super highway for you to be able to come back to your God. You were in exile. I will make it as easy as possible. There will be clear, and it will be evident, the path back to me. John says, I am that voice. I am the voice who makes it clear and evident the path for you to come back to your God. The Bible is very, very clear on John's ministry. It is exceptionally important. He is an important figure no matter how you go through the Bible, no matter where you read of him. If you read what he is doing in the Old Testament and the prophesy about him in the Old Testament, if you read the after effects of his ministry in the New Testament, if you read what the New Testament says about him, he is upheld as exceptionally important. Every gospel includes him. Now, the gospels don't include every single story, especially John's gospel. eliminates many of the stories that the other gospels preach. So when John tells you the same information that the other gospels tell you, it is vitally important that you understand that. Mark, as, as much as Mark wants to get moving with his gospel and he wants to get into the nuts and bolts of what Jesus did, he cannot start his gospel except by starting it with John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke want to get on to the very teaching and the nature of what Jesus proclaimed, but they cannot do that without starting with John the Baptist. Even John, who is taken up not so much with what Jesus does, but with who he is, cannot start that process without first talking about John the Baptist. And John thinks he's even more important because he even snuck twice into the prologue where he's talking about the deity of Christ and he's got to compare the deity of Christ to this light that came from God, which was John the Baptist, who wasn't the light, but he proclaimed and talked about the true light. Not only that, Jesus upheld him as the greatest. Matthew eleven eleven, he says, "Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist." That is mighty praise. He says, "David, David was great." He's no John the Baptist. Isaiah. Good man. Daniel, awesome. Moses, great. None of them compared to John the Baptist. He is the greatest of them all. God gave John the Baptist one thing to do in life, and that was to point toward Jesus, both prospectively before Jesus is on the scene and then retrospectively after he's on the scene. And while Scripture ubiquitously talks about John this way, John doesn't. Everywhere we hear John speaking, he is always deflecting. He is always talking about Christ. He's never talking about himself. He doesn't take up the mantle of Elijah here because he doesn't think he's that important. In the Gospel of John... Before Jesus comes on the scene, he wants to deflect attention away from himself and he denies that he is the Christ. Once he recognizes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in 135, the very next verse that we're not going to preach today, he basically pushes his disciples away to Jesus. The final thing we hear from John in this gospel is that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. This is a man who knows his place and his place is humble. He doesn't think much of himself. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus turns around and says, of all the men born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist, the reason why he has to mention that is because the crowds probably think worse of John the Baptist because in prison, he sends a message out. Knowing that his life is about to end, all he wants to know is, did I do the one thing right that God put me on earth to do? Are you the Christ, or should we be expecting another one? And Jesus says, no, John, you did your job well. That is a humble man. He doesn't, he doesn't care about his life ending in prison. He doesn't say, I was so important, and now I'm dying in prison. Jesus, come and free me. He says, all I care about is that I did my job well. In other words, John was always under the assumption that he was a much smaller light. He was the moon to Christ's sun. His ministry was very particular and somewhat small, and regardless of what Scripture holds him up to be, John was exceedingly humble. Just exceedingly humble. We can all think through our own lives and the humility that we are to have. Listen, let's take a different tact. Think through Jeremiah twenty-nine, 11. A very famous passage. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, that was written to exiles who were to come back And we can say, well, we have to be careful in how we appropriate it, but you ought to appropriate it. Those plans are for the exiles who were brought back. That means those plans are for you. God knows what he wants for you. He wants a future of goodness for you. So let's think through that. Where is that future of goodness? Is it here and here alone? Well, certainly we taste of it here, but we know that ultimately our hope is deferred and delayed for heaven. The the fullness of that passage is referring to our living with him in heaven. So Christian, why are you here? Why has God left you here? If, If his plans are to be with you in heaven, and he has already made a way for you to be to heaven, why has he left you here? It is, of course, for you to do exactly what John the Baptist did. You are to point people to Christ. And God, being sovereign, has given each and every one of you a different situation in which to do that. And some of you are very humble in your situation. Some of you don't have great influence. It's unlikely that you have much of a voice in the world. You speak up. and yeah, It's unlikely that many people listen. Most of you speak up and your kids don't listen, let alone everybody else in the world. You likely don't have much of an audience. Not only do people not listen to your voice, there's not many people listening to you. You likely don't have much of an opportunity to gain these things. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Paul talking to the Corinthians says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. When you think of the gospel of God going out into the world, no doubt, you think of great preachers. You think of Billy Graham, right? It is estimated that he preached the gospel to over 215 million people in his life. I'm going to go out on a limb. You're not going to do that. Maybe 215 people, but probably not a million people, right? George Whitfield can do even better than that. George Whitfield was said that when he was an evangelist in the early days of America, that when he went out and throughout the course of his life, 80% of the colonized part of North America had heard him preach. 80%. And that's not like heard him recorded. That means they showed up and saw the man from a great distance and they heard his voice. 80% of the people. In great scheme of things, friend, you are insignificant. You are not Billy Graham. You're not George Whitfield. You're not John the Baptist. But your greatness is not determined by the number of people that you can interact with. It's not determined by how proud of a stand God has given for you to speak out to people, how great he has made your voice, how large the audience that you can speak to. What makes you great is how clearly you can point to Christ. After he says, John the Baptist is greatest of all those born of women, he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Why? Because John the Baptist could vaguely point to Christ and eventually point to Christ but we can point all the more clearly to him. Listen, no matter your station in life, you're a mom, and you're struggling taking care of children, or you're struggling working, you're struggling balancing all you have in life, you can think that I'm, I'm, I've got so much on my plate, I can barely get through my days. I, I don't know how I'm expected to do great things for God. Listen, you have kids. Evangelize them. You have grandkids evangelize them. You have co-workers. Speak to them when you can. You don't need to have a voice to do great things for God. A woman in the third century named Monica had one person, it seems, that we know of converted through her prayers and her time and her dedication. She knew him well. It was her son. He was veyr, and he was a really not a lazy man, but he was a worldly man, and she prayed for him, and she interceded before God for him, and she lived a godly life, and she evangelized him all the time. She was not much, but her son was, and Augustine shaped, absolutely shaped the church for 1,500 years, and he himself would say his conversion was due to God working through his mother you have no idea the influence that you might have. Humility is okay. Be humble. What if you're just a worker, just witness to the people around you, witness to people on the job? Listen, what turned William Carey away from Anglicanism into Protestantism, a more fervent v- version of Protestantism, was simply a coworker who talked with him about these things. Because that coworker did that, that sent William Carey on a pathway of becoming the modern father of missions, which is the reason why we have 5,000 or 3,000 missionaries on the foreign mission field today sharing the gospel. A good portion of that is due to William Carey, and a good portion of William Carey's life is due to that one little co-worker that he had when he was 18 years old. Witness to people. Don't fret your humility. Second, don't focus on your identity. Don't focus on identity. Just don't do it. Their question is clearly about identity. Why do you do this? It's kind of like asking him, who do you think you are? If you're not the Christ and you're not the prophet and, and, you're, and you're not Elijah, then what gives you the right to do this? Who do you think you are? Now, I think that John's answer here is somewhat incredulous. When he says, up in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am Not worthy to untie. We think that when he says, I baptize with water, if you've read the other Gospels, again, if you've read the other Gospels, what you expect is for him to say something about baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Something about Jesus' baptism being different, but he doesn't do that. So in Matthew 3.11, he says almost the exact same thing. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But you'll notice John doesn't include that. It leads us to think that John wants us to read that little phrase differently. And I think, frankly, that John is mystified about what the Pharisees are asking him. They said, "Who are you? What are you doing?" He says, "I am the one who's proclaiming the highway for God. That God is about to come and I am the one who's clearly going to point it out. I my voice is the highway that will demonstrate where you are to go." And they say, "What gives you the right to baptize?" And he think he says, "I baptize with water." "What do you care?" It's water. I get people a little wet when they repent. This isn't this isn't Christian baptism. Let's make it very clear. The New church, the New Testament church doesn't think that John's baptism is the same as Jesus' baptism. John's baptism is nothing. It's nothing. He even says, listen to it, further down. He says, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. I prepared them for his coming. But my baptism is nothing. Why are you asking me about baptism? I baptize with water. What does it matter? But there is one you don't know. You're focused on me. You're focused on who I am. John says you ought to be focused rather on who he is. So many times when we go to proclaim Jesus Christ and we go to present the gospel, people will bring in objections. They will bring in problems that they have, whether it's with the Bible or whether it's with Christians. Those Christians are just hypocrites. Or we can't tell if the Bible's true. or You don't know if that's true. And they will lead you on all sorts of false trails. All sorts of things that you rightly want to defend. And you should defend. Some people who have these problems are sincere in their problems. They are sincere in saying these things are difficulties for me and I I don't understand how I'm supposed to believe in a book that says this. Some of them are just false. You can tell that they don't really care about the objections. They just don't really want to listen to it. But whether they are sincere and whether they're not, whether you are equipped to handle them or whether you are not, John makes it very, very clear. It is not about you. It can never be about you. It can't be about your ability to answer. It can't be about your ability to win the argument. It can't be about your ability to to be able to provide them a cogent answer for whatever their problems are. One of two things is going to happen. They're either going to reject your claims of authority and reject the answer that you have. Okay. Or, best case scenario, they believe... They believe in your claims for authority. They believe something about you. They believe something about the Bible. But believing stuff about you and believing stuff about the Bible is not the same thing as believing the stuff about Jesus. So especially if this is about the authority of Scripture, which it kind of seems like what's going on is whether John has the authority to proclaim what he's doing or not. What gives you the right, they might say, to proclaim to me the things of God? And you can say, well, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm simply telling you the truth of what the Bible says. Even if you can get them to a place where they accept that the Bible is authoritative, I, I do not think that that is, that is enough. Listen, in John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says to people who stand against him, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He acknowledges that you uphold scripture. You want to go to Scripture to find eternal life? That's great. Eternal life is standing in front of you, and you still don't see it. Having people who uphold the authority of the Bible is not enough. And a very, very powerful parable about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in hell, and he talks to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I beg you, Father, to send him resurrection to my father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's in hell. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convicted if someone should rise from the dead. Listen, this is not a man who thought that Moses and the prophet weren't speaking for God. And Abraham's very clear. Listen, if you, you can have them, and if you don't see Jesus in them, it doesn't matter. Winning arguments, making it about yourself is never what it is. And frankly, we do this sometimes with our testimonies. In our testimonies, we talk about, I was this, I did all these things. I, I acted like this, I did this. Jesus died, I believed. Now I'm a pretty good guy. And so what we end up doing is we have the general flow of things, but on both sides of the equation, there is a huge emphasis on who you are with this little sliver of gospel in the middle. It shouldn't be like that. It should be, I was a sinner. I engaged in these kind of things. I, I, was, I was wrong before God, but then I heard about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is what Jesus did for me. And Jesus should be, listen, if, it, if, it's a, if it's a, you're going to a deli, little slices of bread, lots of meat. Some of your testimonies are huge slabs of bread with like a little cheese in the middle. We don't want that, Okay, as delicious as that might sound. Real thick on the gospel. Real thick on Jesus. John does not want to talk about himself, but he says, there stands one among you you don't know. You should be asking me about him. Don't focus on your identity. Don't focus on the identity of the Bible. Focus on the identity of Christ. And thirdly, Don't forget gospel clarity. Don't forget gospel clarity. Be clear about what the gospel is. There are many reasons why you might muddle this. There are bad reasons and there are good reasons. Bad reasons. Maybe, if you were unclear about what the gospel is, maybe you don't know the gospel. Maybe you don't actually understand what it is that you claim to believe. Maybe you're not a believer, Think through if you can actually proclaim the gospel to somebody. Can you sit down and can you tell the, the elders, can you tell somebody else in the church, can you tell an unbeliever what the gospel is succinctly? Maybe it's because the gospel hasn't been clearly given to you. You are a true believer, but the elders, the preachers, don't do a good enough job being clear with what the gospel is. Maybe it's because you don't read enough of your Bible and so you get confused about what the gospel is and about what are gospel things. There are plenty of good reasons why you might not as well. Listen, the gospel, as we talked about on Sunday night when we talked about evangelism, the gospel is gargantuan. The gospel covers every little facet of your life. To think that at any point in time you can sit somebody down and give a complete gospel presentation is somewhat false, as though the gospel can be limited to a 30-minute or two-hour long conversation where you talk about Jesus. It is always going to be bigger than that. It is always bigger than that. The gospel encompasses everything about us, from the clothes we wear to the food we eat, the songs we sing, our speech, our politics, our friendships, our families, our environment, social justice, education, time management, finances, parenting, how to be a good kid, work ethic, all of these things are impacted by the gospel. Now, if you want to do systematic, full presentation of the gospel, you have to have somebody who is able to witness your holy life throughout all of its entirety. That is a witness to the gospel but we do need to have an ability to get the gospel down to its its most sort of nut form what is the the basic what is the foundation of what the gospel is is it that jesus does a lot of stuff for us he liberates us he's a great example for us he shows us what god is like he's a really excellent teacher he's a wonderful friend and comforter is that what the gospel is the gospel is those things. The gospel does mean that God loves you and he comforts you with the gospel. The gospel is the fact that Jesus is an example for how we are to live our lives in holiness. Those things are true, but they're not foundational. What John does here is show us the foundational thing. When he saw Jesus coming toward him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The gospel is about sin first and foremost. The gospel is about the fact that you... As you stand today, even as a believer, as you stand today, you would be condemned outside of the work of Jesus Christ. You are sinful in and of yourself. That sin is not just the things that you have done as though you can change. That sin is part and parcel of who you are. You cannot get out of its web. The more you try to shake it, the more it encloses upon you. It's like a Chinese finger trap. You cannot pull your way out. It hangs on you, and there is no escape from it. You deserve the wrath of the Almighty God from all eternity. to bear down upon you, to burn you forever in ways that we can even have a language to talk about because they're so horrific, the New Testament has to turn to metaphors like where there's clenching and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die of eternal fire. Listen, hell is not eternal fire. It's worse. That is what we deserve and what The gospel is, is first and foremost, before it is anything else, is your deliverance from that reality. You were sinful, but Jesus took away the sin of the world. He bore the sin on his shoulders. He removed it from you. He quenched the Father's wrath against you. By taking his wrath, Jesus has taken it away from you and put it on his shoulders, and he has removed it from you. Secondly, it is about sacrifice. Jesus doesn't do this by wishing it to happen. Jesus doesn't do this by asking the Father to remove sin from you. Jesus doesn't do this because he's a shining example of a nice guy, and he says, listen, I'm going to die, and so maybe you can back off on all the anger and wrath, Dad. No, Jesus took your wrath upon Himself. That is what sacrifice means. He laid down his life for yours. The whole idea of the lamb here, especially when he's talking to priests and he's talking to Pharisees, would have conjured up immediately not just the Passover, but all of the sacrifices. Those lambs were sacrificed so that God's wrath would not fall upon the people. Instead, it fell upon the lamb. And that is exactly what Jesus does. To take your sin away, he must die. The death that was owed to you, he took upon himself. So the gospel is about sin, the gospel is about sacrifice, and lastly, and most importantly, the gospel is about Jesus. Notice how he talks to him. He says, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know him. My mom, Elizabeth, didn't sit me down and say, listen, this cool thing happened when when I was when I first had you, I was about six months pregnant. This cool thing happened, and Mary came, and this is going to be the Christ. So when you see your cousin Jesus, make sure you call him the Christ, because this is what we've been telling people, and we need to keep up appearances. Okay? So we've got this story working out, and you just need to, just John, just, just, I know you don't want to just run with me here. Okay? He says, I didn't know who he was. The way I knew who he was was God revealed him to me. God told me the one that the dove rested on and stayed there. That was going to be the Messiah. That was the one who would take away the sin of the world. That was going to be the Son of God. It is about Jesus. It's not just that these things happen. It's that Jesus is the one that makes them happen. So when you sit down to proclaim the gospel to somebody, you have to mention the fact that they are sinful, but that Jesus came to remove that sin from them. And by trusting and believing in him, they can have eternal life. That is not all of the gospel. That's not all the gospel is there for. It's not all the gospel can do. But it is the first and the fountainhead of everything that happens that is good for us. That is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and resurrected on the third day for your justification. And you can be forgiven because Christ has died for you. But trust in him. Place all of your eggs in that basket and allow him to carry away your sins and to give you new life. Friends, if you know Christ and you have been left here to be a witness to him, that is, that is it. You were not left here to be an engineer. You were not left here to be a a clerk. You were not left here to be a social worker. You weren't left here to be doing any of that. God doesn't need you to do that. Those are jobs. That's not God's calling upon your life. You will search in vain to find a verse that says, You were called by God to be Whatever your job is today, you can fill in. I don't care what job you have, even my vocation. There is no place that says, Doug was called to be this, but every single believer was called to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Every single one of us was. This was the great commission given to us. You will be my disciples to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth, the great commission that you are to go out and baptize, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says at the end there, lo, I'm with you, into the end of the age, he means everyone who does this, I'm with you. If you don't want to do it, he's not with you. It is your responsibility, your duty before God, in love to him and in love to the, the people who are lost and dying in their sin, to be a witness to them. So do it well. Do it well. Now, friends, if you don't know him today, if you really don't understand the gospel, let it be today that you entrust yourself to him. Your burden can be taken away. Your sins can be removed from you. You don't have to stand condemned before God anymore. You can be assured of your salvation because Jesus Christ has taken away and removed your sins by sacrificing himself on your behalf. In humility. Confess him and trust in him. He is the only hope you have of escaping the penalty for your sins. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only thing that is trustworthy with your very life. Confess him. Do not deny it, but confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have no better news than that. Let us pray. Father, that is indeed good news for us, and we are thankful that Jesus Christ has come and died as a sacrifice for our sin. We pray that we would be better as a church, as a congregation, as individuals within that church to witness to Jesus Christ. That we would not think in our humility that we have nothing to offer, for we have the gospel. We have the power of God for salvation in our hands. We have the ability to point people to the source of all their life, to the source of everything that is good, to the source of their forgiveness, to the source of a sacrifice that will quench God's wrath over them. Let us be then, not in humility running from that, but in humility accepting the calling that you have placed upon us. Let us always focus on Jesus Christ. Let us witness to his sacrifice for sins, that he might be glorified above all so that everyone might know him and confess his name to the praise of Jesus Christ our Lord and to God his Father in heaven. We ask that you are glorified by our efforts and that you are glorified by our words and our mouths. In Jesus' name, amen.